0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Who I Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Amen. And all God's people said, praise you.
1: Pray again. Father, by your word, you created everything that is and continue to sustain life. Father, we recognize that not only is there power in your word, but that there's power in every single one of your words. There aren't just some partly divine. Words There aren't just partly authoritative words, but Father, every word that you utter brings with it life. And the way of blessing and the way of peace. So, Father, we count ourselves as a blessed people to sit with this word in front of us now. We thank you, Father, for all the ways that you worked throughout redemptive history, moving kingdoms and nations and the hearts of men to bring this word to us as we receive it this morning. We more than this father, we count ourselves blessed to have this word here in our own language. We thank you father for the men and the women that gave their very lives father to translate and to transmit this word that we could have it in a language that we can understand. We thank you for the gift of writing and the gift of reading and the gift of minds that can understand the words on this page. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Father, because without his coming, these would be nothing more than words on a page. So we ask in the moments to come, Father, that you would do this, what can often seem like an everyday thing if we're not careful, but this supernatural thing, bringing this word to life for us, planting real seeds of life in our heart and then transforming us by it. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory and that you would do it for our good and that you would do it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We trust that you can. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 as you stand to your feet and we read together. We're going to be looking at this in two chunks Verse 1 through 6 And then eventually verse 7 through 13 But in order to understand the flow We'll read it all together this morning Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 Through verse 13 This is the holy and inerrant Infallible Sufficient Authoritative word of God Ephesians 3 Beginning in chapter 1 For this reason I, Paul Members of the same body and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. There are particular times when working through scripture the way that we do, verse by verse, that it is helpful to remember that the divisions we find in our Bible were not part of Paul's original writing. Paul didn't put the little numbers out next to each verse. He didn't include the chapter headings or the chapter numbers. Frankly, the way this would have looked in its original form, there wouldn't have even been spaces to figure out where one chapter began or one paragraph began and another ended. This was just one long flow of thought. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul was just writing. But it is clear that as we come here to chapter 3, that he has shifted his focus somewhat. You can sense it in the words that I've just read for you, even if this is the first time that you've thought through chapter 3. But you see that how closely it's tied by those very first words there. It says, for this reason. When, When we see these types of connective phrases or words like for or therefore, it's meant to draw our mind back to everything that's just come before. And what he's saying here is for, for this reason, in light of everything that we've just spent the last however many weeks it was studying together. For this reason, because of the inclusion of the Gentiles in all that God has been doing. Because God has come and proclaimed to those who are far off and to those who are near that he's now building one singular people. People who will all themselves be counted as citizens of the kingdom of God. Members of the household of God. And as we discovered last week, living stones in the holy temple of God. This glorious news that has come to us. This glorious news that had come to the Gentiles there in Ephesus. He's saying in in light of this, as you consider this, what's happening is Paul himself is thinking and reveling in all that he's just said. And this is Paul's ordinary pattern. He's not a man that can just teach dryly. He's not a man that can just throw out some information like this and not be moved in his own heart, no matter how many times he's remembered, no matter how many times he's considered these things, no matter how many times he's watched the spirit of God work and calling people in to the singular people that he's building. Paul can't ever say it without it affecting his heart and driving him drives him to worship and it drives him to prayer and it drives him to just the sense of jubilation that it's still true. The thing that was hidden for all the ages has been revealed to me that I may now come and reveal it to you and it blows me away every time I hear it and I pray that that's your heart as well. As we work through these texts together and we we seek to get every last piece of meat off of the bone, I pray that you don't become dry or or cold in your heart, that every time you hear it, it's as if you heard it for the very first time. God's building one people, not just a people, a kingdom, not just a kingdom, a house, not just a house, but a temple where he dwells and I'm part, me, me. Mama always said that amount to something, but not this. So he's driven by this to say, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Where's the rest of the sentence? That's not a complete sentence. There's no proper verb there. He, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. And then there's just a dash. And so because of this, some people wanna help Paul out. Quit trying to help the uh, biblical authors out. They don't need your help. But because of this, people can feel this temptation to to add a verb in there. They add the I am verb in here. Maybe maybe Paul just forgot it, or maybe it just got lost somewhere in translation. And so they add in am. And so what they would read this to say is, for this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Saying the reason that I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles is because of everything else that I've just said. Now that's not altogether an untrue statement, but it's not what Paul said. And just because something might be true, maybe even because something might be helpful, does not make it scripture. Does it make it what Paul meant to say? Even if it makes for cleaner writing, or even if it makes for a completed sentence. We do well to remember that what Paul was doing here was not some scholastic exercise. He wasn't at a UIL competition. He he wasn't writing something that he was going to turn around and submit to a publisher. This was a letter. This was a letter filled with passionate pastoral concern. Again, I say we find Paul getting kind of wrapped up in his own message sometimes, and he just breaks off into doxology. Don't mind me. I'm going to be over here worshiping. That the point of what he's doing here is he is a pastor writing to a people. And this is helpful, not just for this section that we look at now, but again, everything that's come before. All of this deep and often difficult theology. People in in today's American evangelical church will often say, this is too much, man. We live in the the real age, the YouTube age, the, the snippet age where people's intellect and their their attention span, it's not more than 45 seconds at a time. They don't, they don't have the ability to think through these long run-on sentences that the Apostle Paul delivers here. Beloved, I remind you that many of the people that first received this letter were slaves, and more than that, many of them were illiterate, untrained in any kind of rhetoric or logic or much of what we're trying to wrestle with as, as we come to this word. But what, what the Apostle Paul knew was, this is what these people need. This is what they need to live godly lives. This is what they need to press on, to cling tight to Christ Jesus in the midst of real suffering that's coming their direction. And so whenever you've got that kind of passion and that type of concern, style goes right out the window in exchange for substance. That's got to be the heart of a teacher. Far more important than grammar or formatting or any of this, it's gotta be, am I speaking clearly? And am I delivering to these people, trusting the Holy Spirit to work this thing out? But am I delivering to these people the thing they actually need? Knowing that for some, they're going to say, that's too much, man. I don't want to bring my head to this thing. I don't want to have to do more school. I just came from a week of school. I don't want to come back and have to engage my mind like this. But the Apostle Paul, trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to deliver to you the only thing that's going to lead to life. And I'm going to do it in a way that it's as clear and succinct succinct and straightforward as possible. Again, not worrying about style, all about the substance. And I say this in large part to myself. I will tell you as a pastor, as a pastor in this YouTube age, when I know that you people have access to all the world's greatest pastors, all the world's greatest preachers are at your fingertips. So I preach this message this morning, and then you can go out and you can listen to what all the greats of old have said about this text. And if we're not careful, you compare me to them. And so then what can I do? My heart can get swept up into, I need to be stylish. I need to be clever. I need to be innovative. I need to be engaging. I need to be captivating. I need to be entertaining. It's helpful for me to remember the Apostle Paul didn't think in those terms. He said, what these people need is the straightforward word of God. So sometimes I'm not going to speak in complete sentences. Sometimes he's going to break it off just like this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now what we see him doing here is he's fixing to break off into a prayer. That's what's happening. He's so moved by everything that he's just said. He has a desire to pray for him. And you know how I know this is if I skip down to verse 14, look down your page a bit. You see how he begins verse one. For this reason, I, Paul. Then what does he say in verse 14? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He started out to say a prayer on behalf of these people. But then for some reason, he stops. For this reason, I, Paul, he's about to pray. But then he stops and he goes on a 12-verse a, a digression. From verse 3 all the way down through verse 13. He, he, it, it's a diversion. It's, a, it's, a, it's an end around. He, he changes course in mid-sentence. And he begins to talk about his own ministry. How this mystery of Christ has been entrusted to him that he may then carry it on and deliver it to these Gentiles. Talking about the fact that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, part of this foundation that we talked about some weeks ago, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He's talking about his own ministry as an apostle who is part of this foundation, who delivers to these people the unsearchable riches of Christ. Talking about himself before then he circles back and finishes his prayer in verse 14 Now we know that Paul is not an egomaniac We know that Paul his mission is to preach about Christ and him crucified. It's not just to give his own biography Generally if Paul's going to talk about himself, he's going to have a good reason for it Oftentimes what we find is that when Paul breaks off to talk about himself. It's to make clear. I'm the least of the saints I'm the chief of the sinners I'm the worst of the apostles, not even fit to be called an apostle because I was the one persecuting the church. Sometimes he'll break off to talk about his own apostleship because he recognizes that the people on the other side, they're not hearing him, that there's voices in their head. Beloved, beware of the voices. Don't listen to voices out there. There were voices out there that were convincing them, you can't listen to Paul. And so there were times when Paul would draw their minds back to this. I, too, am an apostle. Inspired and called and set aside and used of God to deliver to you this message. But he doesn't do any of that here. He, he, he does briefly talk about himself as the, as the least of the saints. But he simply presents his apostleship as fact. It's the way he begins his letter "The Apostle Paul. He didn't give any defense because apparently no defense or no explanation of his apostleship is needed. He just simply goes into talking about the way in which God has chosen and is working through them. How Paul's life and ministry was related to the blessings that these people now received. But we do find the reason for the digression. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, he tells us, why did I take this little jaunt off off the path? Why did I stop my prayer short? He says, so I ask you. Not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So it seems to me that what happens here is, is that Paul is about to enter into his prayer for these people. He begins his prayer by mentioning something about his imprisonment. And then immediately he says to himself, wait a minute. I've got to explain some things to these people, to these saints in Ephesus. I've got to ex- explain some things to them about why I'm in prison. How did I come to be in prison? And for what purpose am I here in prison? Otherwise, these people might get discouraged or confused or even fearful for themselves. And, and you can understand this, right? Because he's just taking us to the greatest heights of height. He, he's, he's showing us all that is ours in Christ Jesus. The innumerable blessings, the lavish grace that, are, that is ours in Christ Jesus. Talking about all of this, what it means to be part of the household and the family and the kingdom and the temple of God. And then immediately says, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm locked up in prison. And so you can see his pastoral concern. He's not worried about himself. He's worried about how they're going to receive it. How are these people on the other end of this line, how are they going to receive and understand the fact that I'm in prison? And we see this not just here. But in various other places, the passage that David read earlier out of Philippians, we'll refer to that a couple of times during this morning's message. We also see it at the end of his life when he's writing to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Do not be ashamed and do not lose heart. That's a recurring theme from the Apostle Paul. As you look to me, the one who's delivered this news to you, and all the promises that I've made in light of the gospel, don't lose heart. Don't be ashamed. And then he moves on to talk about all that's been accomplished. Now, it seems to me that the Apostle's pattern here, that Paul's way in which he's going to make sure that the saints in Ephesus don't lose heart and he's going to make sure that that Timothy is not tempted to be uh, ashamed of him and his imprisonment, is he's going to talk about just the facts of the case, just, just the facts of the matter, so that these people could then do the same for themselves. When their own day of suffering comes, he's laying for them a pattern. This is what we do. We slow down and we actually think about what's happening. What are the spiritual facts of the matter that are in front of me? And I was thinking about it this week. Have you ever seen a man get pummeled? Or, or jumped is a more common term. You ever seen a man just getting jumped and beat on by a bunch of men? I went to North Shore, so I've seen this a time or two. But the dude's on the ground, he just curls up in a ball, he did not even know where the blows are coming from. He did not know who's whipping on him. Sometimes I do not even know why he's getting whooped on. And oftentimes what you'll find is once the beating stops, once the pummeling's over, the dude is almost more distraught with the confusion and the terror and, and just the chaos. Even if he's even if the licks haven't really even landed, just just the the chaos and the confusion of the moment. I don't even know where to look. I don't even know who the bad guy is. I don't even know why I'm getting beat in this moment. So it seems to me that what the Apostle Paul is saying is, those days are going to come. And when those days come and you don't know where to look and you don't know where the blows are coming from and you don't know why, you do well to calm down, to hit pause, and to think about the facts, to think about what we know. Problem is, when the licks are coming, you're not always going to be able to draw your mind there. So you do it now. In a room like this, when things are relatively calm, some of you are in the middle of a pummeling right now. I get this. But for most of you, you're either coming out of a season of getting a beating or you're going into one at some point. So right now, while things are relatively calm, let's just think about the facts. And and this really is the key. We see how the Apostle Paul, he not only calls us not to lose heart. He not only calls us not to be ashamed. He calls us to rejoice in the middle of suffering. Romans 5, 2, he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. He says, what's the key to rejoicing in my suffering? It's knowing some stuff. Knowing some things, knowing something about God and God's pattern and God's character and God's promises. How can I rejoice in suffering? It's the stuff that I know. That's how I rejoice. Now, Paul is gonna do exactly that here. He's just gonna think about the whole thing. He's just gonna lay out the whole thing and say, how did I land in this place? And he's gonna preach to himself the things, the things that his heart and his mind that they know to be true. And again, I say he's gonna invite the saints in Ephesus and the saints here in this room What things do we need to set our heart on? What things do we need to know to be true about God so that we might learn to be a people who suffer well? And you see, there's there's many people who struggle with this kind of thing, right? Because we know that just head knowledge itself isn't enough. I mean, you, you know this, that just knowing some set of facts about God or being able to recite even all the promises of God from Scripture, if that doesn't translate to your heart, if that doesn't change you in some way, if it's not accompanied by the working of the Holy Spirit of God, it's not going to amount to anything. Head knowledge in and of itself isn't enough. And so what some people do is they say, well, then it's not worth the effort. It's not worth struggling to know these things. And they throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt as a man that has walked through great suffering with many of you, that, I, that one of the realities is that these people in those moments, the more they know about God and God's character and his patterns in his life, the better they endure the deeper they're able to press in. Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 3, verse 9 to 10. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What's part of what God does in order to prepare you for these times of suffering, to endure you and persevere you through times of suffering? It's that you're being renewed in what? Renewed in strength? Renewed in power? Renewed in... No, renewed in knowledge. Renewed in your understanding because as quickly as that knowledge is coming in, you seem to be losing it out the back door because you've got so much coming at you from the world. So many distractions and so many discouragements coming at you It says day after day, though, you're being renewed in this knowledge by the work of God because your heart and your eyes, they're going to lie to you in that moment. What have we talked about almost every single Wednesday night for the last year? It seems like we've come to some passage in the book of the Psalms. that's talked about the reality. You can't believe your lying eyes. You can't believe your lying heart. You can believe the Word of God so that we're constantly feasting on it and constantly feeding it to ourselves and constantly preaching it to each other. Because the reality is, there's going to be times when, as one man says, Christ on my lips is stronger than the Christ in your heart. It's the same Christ, but our sinful hearts get in the way. And so you need to hear it from the lips of a brother. That this is what he's setting the pattern for us. So let's look at some of the things that he says from the things we know to be true about Paul's imprisonment. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And that's, that's a somewhat strange way to think about our relationship with Jesus. We call him a brother, we call him a friend, we call him the head or the, the bridegroom of the church. We call him the chief cornerstone. We call him our savior or our redeemer or our king. But Paul here calls him A prisoner himself, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, there are some lines of thought throughout Scripture. Paul himself talks at times about the idea that we are a slave to Christ. Scripture says that we are no longer our own. We have been purchased at a price. But again, here he says, I'm a prisoner. If if you're reading from a text that is the uh, King James Version or the NIV or the NASV, you'll find that he doesn't say that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And the articles there in the Greek, translators just have to decide, should this be included or not? But it seems clear to me that what the Apostle Paul is talking about is not something that is um, some generic experience of all Christians everywhere. This is something specific and unique to Paul. Not the suffering, but the form this particular suffering comes in. So it's healthy, healthy for us to be reminded that we won't all suffer the same. Not all suffering is going to come in the same form, with the same kind of intensity, with the same regularity, with the same uh, brevity or length to how it lasts. And that's part of the beauty of the way that God has has built us. There's times when one suffers so that the other can come alongside and lift him up. That he doesn't bring suffering equally on all of us at the exact same time allows you to go particular, through particular seasons of suffering that you can then strengthen another as you come out the back end of this. And there's, a, there, there's an incredible work that happens here. There's a phenomenon in um, strength and conditioning. Uh, when one of, one of us would get injured in school, let's say we, we injured our left shoulder, oftentimes what a coach would have us do is we would lay down on a, on a bench, let's say, they would hold that shoulder still and we would just lift weights just with that right arm and they would say, listen, there is a transference here as your right side gets, harder, gets gets stronger, in some way that strength is maintained over here during this season. And I see that to be true in the family of God amongst our body. That we realize that every time you go through this season, whether it's a season of sorrow or a season of joys, that the whole of the body is being benefited and blessed and strengthened and built up even in the middle of this. So that we're able to walk through this with an understanding of I'm fighting on behalf of my brothers in this as well. And so he's saying that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now we know that Paul spent much time in prison throughout his ministry. Much of his writing occurred in prison. That letter that I referenced earlier, his, his last written letter, the one he wrote to, to Timothy, that that was as he was waiting, awaiting his execution. So Paul was a man who spent a lot of time in prison and would ultimately behead, be beheaded there in prison. But you'll notice that even though Paul is a prisoner in Rome, and even though he's a prisoner in Rome because he's been handed over to Rome by the Jews, he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome or I'm a prisoner of the Jews. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. and. Now again, this is a weird way to speak about this because it's not as though Christ Jesus was the, the guard. It's not as though Christ Jesus is the one that's holding the keys or that has chained Paul in a, in a chain gang or two of his other prisoners here. But Paul knows that the reason I'm in prison is because of Christ Jesus. Specifically because of his commitment to preach the truth, to preach this mystery about Christ. We see this in his letter to the Colossians. You'll notice, those of you that weren't here when we first You you, you remember week one in Ephesians, we just did a very brief synopsis. We, We worked through the whole book in one sitting and we talked about the fact that it seems very likely that this letter was written at the exact same time and delivered by the exact same man as his letter to the Colossians. And so we see some real parallels there. He says in Colossians 4, 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ "...on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak." He says, it's on account of the mystery of Christ. It's on account of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I'm in prison. Therefore, pray for me. So Paul knew exactly why he's in prison. I'm in prison because I've been called by God and set apart to preach this mystery right here. The mystery of Christ is what he calls it. And he knows I could make the thing stop. What do I got to do in order to stop laying myself in prison? i got to stop preaching the mystery. I've got to back off from the message. I've got to stop proclaiming the news. But he says, no, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't just say though that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's saying not only is it because of the message of Christ Jesus, but it's because I've been called of God to deliver this message to you. It was God's means of getting this message to you that landed me in prison. That's why as we look in verse two, he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me for you. We're going to talk next week about this reality. That there was a grace that was given. First, Paul counts as a grace as he sits in prison. How many of you could speak like that? But there's a grace that was entrusted to me. I'm a steward. I'm a household manager of this grace for you. In verse eight, he says to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles in searchable riches of Christ. He knows I'm not just in prison because I've been entrusted with the mystery of Christ. I'm in prison because I've been entrusted with the mystery of Christ and been commanded to deliver it to you. Now, I have to imagine that if when Jesus had encountered Paul on the road to Damascus and said, OK, Paul, you're going to be a soldier for me. You're going to be an ambassador for me. You're going to be an inspired author for me. Who do you want to go to? I have to imagine that Paul's first inclination would have been, I want to go to the Jews. You think about his heart in Romans 9, how he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness about me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, I myself, it were, if it were possible, I myself would be accursed that the Jews may come to know Christ. So if Paul had been given an option, I imagine, he would have said, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll take this message, I'll take this mystery of Christ, I'll even go to prison, but can I do it on behalf of the Jews, my kinsmen, my countrymen? But Paul didn't get to pick his life. Paul didn't get to pick his assignment. It says in verse 7 here of chapter 3, it says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. We, we, We see it again as you go back to the road to Damascus. You think about this. Jesus didn't politely knock on the door to Paul's heart like a little puppy dog scratching, hoping that he would let him in. He was overwhelmed. The glory of Christ blinding him there on that road. And the resurrected Christ spoke to him and he said, rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. You don't call the shots anymore, Paul. Do you understand? I don't care what papers you have in your possession. I don't care what letters and earthly authority you carry. You belong to me. And so I will tell you what to do. Then as he speaks, as, as Christ speaks to, to Ananias and tells him what's going to happen. He says, for Paul, this is Acts 9.15, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This was all the work of God. And so here he is, he's saying, because of all that that has happened, I now, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. As I said, he was currently in Rome in prison sometime around 60 A.D. And we know, thankfully, because of the book of Acts, as you look at the story of Acts, you go to Acts 19 and Paul is there in, uh, in Ephesus. And he goes through Macedonia and he decides he wants to go back to Jerusalem to observe the, uh, the feast of Pentecost. And as he comes to Caesarea in Acts 21, he's there at the house of Philip, the evangelist, and a, a guy named Agabus, a prophet. He comes in and he takes Paul's. There's some peculiar times in scripture when the prophets will act out their prophecies. You can imagine how this goes over. They don't stand up and declare a word, they show you the word. And so what we saw there is how this man Agabus, he took the belt, took Paul's belt from him and he he bound his own hands and his own feet. And, And he says there, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now Paul knew what he was getting into. Paul was the persecutor of the church. That's why he says, I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I sought to destroy the church. I sought to kill the saints. He knew the way that the Jews hated the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knew the way that the Romans were desperate to keep peace, that they were going to do whatever was necessary to squash this movement if that's what it would take to keep peace there in Jerusalem. And so he recognizes, this is what I'm getting myself into. He wasn't surprised by the news that Agabus brought to him. But the people were. So we read in Acts 21, 13, that the people, in Acts that the people start crying and, and pleading with Paul and telling him, don't go. Don't go. If this is what awaits you, don't go. Then Acts 21, 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't bluffing. I'll say some things sometimes that I'll, I absolutely mean from this pulpit. In this moment, as I stand here, I absolutely mean them. I will say things to you like, I am willing to die for you. I'm willing to die for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. willing to be imprisoned and beaten, and I will not shy away. I say those things right now, at the same time praying to God, may they be true when the moment comes. Because in my flesh, I'm a coward, and I'm weak, and I can't even push away from a plate full of donuts, and I think I'm going to die for Christ. But Paul showed that he was a man of his word, not because of the strength in Paul, because of the Holy Spirit in him. He said, I'm ready to die. And he would. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem and you know that he met with the leaders of the church. He meets with James and the others and they affirm, yeah, that's what's waiting on you, buddy. That's what's going to happen. And so he goes and we read then that he was there in the temple and that some Jews from Asia had come and they recognized Paul and they recognized another man named Trophimus and they assumed this was a man from Ephesus. He was a Gentile. And so they assumed that Paul had taken this man, this Gentile, into the temple. And so they screamed out and they cried out and they asked for help and they grabbed Paul and they drove him out of the temple and they beat him and they sought to kill him before the authorities intervened. And we know that then Paul looked to this He looked to this Roman tribute and he said, can I address my people? Can I speak to my people? So in Acts 22, he stands up and he begins to tell of his own conversion. He begins to tell about Jesus coming to him on the road to Damascus. And everything's fine because, beloved, nobody's ever offended by your personal testimony. Nobody's ever offended by you telling about all the great things that Jesus has done for you. And so everything was just great then. then, Everything's going smashingly. And then he says, Acts twenty two twenty one, And Christ said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22. Up to this word, they were listening to him. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Beloved, what you're going to find is that 90% of the things you have to say about Christ, the rest of the world's okay with. They'll even endorse it. The question is that other 10%. The question is that other 10% that is required of you, if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God, and are you going to have the boldness to say it, knowing what their response is going to be? Again, people will do this, right? And I understand the heart, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for this, if nothing else. But people will say, look, I'm not ashamed to say I believe in Christ. Well, that's good. You should not be ashamed of Christ. And, and, and you should be willing to stand up and boldly proclaim, "I believe in Jesus Christ." But well, what are you really risking? I mean, there's there's parts of the world where there's something at risk. There, of course, there's parts of the world where you can lose your life. But in Crosby, Texas, to say I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, people aren't going to start falling out. They're not going to call you the devil. They're not going to want to lock you up in chains. Or they'll they'll make some kind of moral statement that you don't have to be a believer to to, to agree with, right? You just make the kind of statements that any political conservative might say, boys are boys and girls are girls. True, yes. But there's a whole lot more here than that. The question is, will you preach the full counsel of God's word? I'm not talking about trying to be a jerk. I'm not talking about trying to start a fight. I'm saying there's a whole lot here. And again, about 90% of it, the rest of the world will nod along. But will you preach the other 10? The other five? The other two? Knowing it's going to bring a fight? I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul prayed for. Down in in chapter 6 of his letter to the Ephesians, he says this, verse 19, Pray also for me, that words may be given to me to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it Boldly, as I ought to speak. He doesn't pray for release. He prays that he can be called to speak boldly. Do you know when you need to ask people to pray for your confidence? Do you know when you need to ask for people to call you to speak boldly? It's when you know the thing I'm about to say, it's about to start some fires. The thing I'm about to say is about to be a whole lot more offensive than just Jesus Christ is Lord. That preaching the full counsel of God's word means preaching it even and especially when you know that it's going to make you the bad guy. Again, I'm not talking about picking a fight. I'm not talking about trying to be a jerk. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've had those conversations with people and religion comes up. And you're talking about just the generalities about God or about Christ or about something. And the guy's nodding his head. He's going along. And then he says something that you know is absolutely untrue. Absolutely unbiblical and untrue. Or there's some portion of his life that doesn't match up with his confession. And you know, God, you're going to make me do this, aren't you? You're fixing to make me say this, aren't you? I know that the minute I say this, you're going to go from friend to foe. I know that the minute you say this, I'm going to be the bad guy in this scenario. How many people do you think that there were standing there as Paul is standing on the steps and addressing the people in Hebrew? How many people do you think were there in the audience going, Paul, I brought a visitor today, not this again. Why do you got to always bring this up? This is the kind of stuff that divides us, Paul. Why can't you build unity, man? Why is it always going to be that last 10 percent that you run out? I've got to say it. I'll tell you what God's word actually means by what it actually says. How committed was Paul to speaking this whole truth? Think back to what he said in Galatians 2, Galatians 2:11. 2, but when Cephas came to Antioch, that's, that's Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter was acting like a hypocrite. How committed was Paul to preaching the whole gospel, the whole truth, the whole counsel of God's word? He opposed Peter to his face. Look, friends were hard to come by, okay? There weren't a whole lot of believers to pick and choose from. And so don't you know there are people saying, Paul, can you really afford to pick a fight with Peter right now? Can you really afford to to offend the leaders that have come from the church? Paul, stop. And there was plenty of outs, weren't there? There are plenty of outs whenever he would hear about what proclaiming this truth would cost him. When people that meant well, people that loved Paul would come to him and say, come on, man, just don't. Just let it lie. Why do you always have to be the bad guy? Why do you always have to be the guy that says that last 10% that you know is going to infuriate everybody? But again, I tell you, Paul didn't land himself in jail because he loved God. Paul didn't even land himself in prison because he believed in Christ Jesus. Paul landed himself in jail because he counted himself as a slave to Christ. It was required to speak whatever God's word said at that particular moment. He says exactly this in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your passages may say compels us. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I'm constrained. I'm compelled. I'm controlled by the love of Christ that he showed in laying down his life. I am not my own. This mouth is not my own. These lips are not my own. I must speak his truth. Not just the easy portions of his truth that everybody wants to hear. Not just the parts of his truth that are going to gain me fame and popularity. Not just the parts of that truth that are going to keep me in unity with Peter while he's living in sin. The whole truth of what God has to say. That I must proclaim. That's challenging. Is a dude that speaks a lot of words? But I submit to you, it should be no less challenging for you. This isn't a call just to pastors and to preachers and to teachers. Again, I tell you, what he's setting for us here is a standard and an example of how we're meant to walk. And no, our suffering will not always come in this same way. The persecution won't look the same. Look, there is suffering that's going to come. It's not going to be because of the direct sin of a man standing in front of you. It may be because of things that we count as natural. Natural suffering. Suffering that is much more common to man. But the question is still the same. Will I say the truth? Will I speak the whole truth in the middle of my suffering, no matter what it is? Because there's some ways in which it'd be much easier. Look, if the dudes walked through the door and said, quit preaching the full counsel of God's word or I'll throw you in jail, that's kind of a no-brainer. But it's when the devil works in his much more sneaky ways to infiltrate your life and to twist and to manipulate and to convince you. Yeah, you can preach this truth with your your mouth, but are you really going to live it out with your life? If it means more suffering, if it means more pain, if it means more opposition, if it means your reputation is trash, will you continue to walk like this? But again, I tell you, Paul is setting for us here a pattern for the ordinary saints, not just the apostles and not just the pastors. He says in Philippians 1.14, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment. And they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, I am setting a pattern for you that you may become bold. You may speak this kind of truth without fear. Again, I say, not just with your words, but with the whole of your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I listened to a sermon completely unrelated to this, but somehow he spoke back into this this week. And what he says is, this is the acid test for the Christian life. Not just what do you confess with your mouth, but what does your life say when the suffering comes? It's easy to believe these things. It's easy to walk this upright Christian life whenever everything seems to be turning up roses. It's when you get punched in the mouth or when someone's standing across from you threatening to punch you now. That's even harder. This is going to hurt. This is going to be costly. Do you live it then? So I want you to look at a couple of ways in which very briefly before we conclude, just just a, a couple of things I think we can glean from this. And firstly... We don't lose heart. Paul didn't lose heart. Paul was able to rejoice in his suffering because he knew that his imprisonment was God's will. I am a prisoner of Christ. This wasn't just coincidental to his ministry. It wasn't just, Paul, you want to do something and look. There's really no other way for us to accomplish this other than you go into prison. So I don't really want this for you, but you're going to have to just walk through this in order for me to accomplish this thing. That's not the way this works. What does he say in verse 11? This was according to the eternal purpose, which he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What was according to the eternal purpose? Well, everything that he accomplished in Christ. Yes. The delivering of everything he accomplished in Christ to the Gentiles. Yes. But also every single step along the way, not just the ends, but the means, the way in which he accomplished this. How do I know this? In part because of the whole of teaching of Scripture. But think back again to what did he say to Ananias? I will show him. That's Paul. I will show him how much he must suffer on my behalf. I didn't just call him to do something. I called him to show him this way of suffering. And it isn't that Jesus is saying, look, you've done too much bad stuff to just get off scot-free here, uh, Paul. If you want in with my people, you're going to have to pay your way in. You're going to have to suffer your way and you're going to have to prove your salt. No, 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 that's not it at all. We know that one of the most fundamental truths to the Christian life is there will be suffering. There is no glory without the suffering. Again, as Paul was in prison waiting to be put to death, he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're living a life that is absent any persecution, we ought to have a concern here. Do I even have a desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Jesus himself says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Just meditate on that for a while. When everybody has nothing but good things to say about you, woe to you. Cursed are you. Because so they did with the false prophets. You know the kind of people that the, that the whole world speaks well of? False prophets. Ticklers of ears. Liars who say peace, peace, where there is no peace. But if you want to live a godly life, there will be persecution. Again, it won't always look like immediate, obvious, earthly, a man front standing in front of me with a gun kind of persecution. Some of it may be the ordinary suffering of this world and the question of will I press on? If your own body starts to work against you in this. But again, I say to you, it's not just that this is the only path to glory, that this is the only path to godliness. I say to you, this is God's will. Going back to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians 129. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Hear that again. It has been granted to you as a gift from God for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but that you should suffer for his sake. Engaging in the same conflict you saw that I have and now have still. Or Peter, 1 Peter three seventeen. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. He's saying there's a suffering that comes to the life of the believer and you can stand in the middle of the suffering and say, this is God's will for me. If God is who scripture says that he is, if God is providentially working as scripture says he is in all things, then the believer can look. Those who are walking in obedience to Christ Jesus, you can look to the suffering that comes in this life. Whether it's imprisonment, whether it's sickness, whether it's hatred, whether it's loss of money or health or reputation, or family, or relationship, or whatever it is. You can look at whatever suffering comes, no matter how big or how small, and you can say with Joseph, as he stood face to face with his brothers, you didn't send me here, God did. Big things, small things, happy things, scary things, all things for the life of the believer lived in obedience to Christ Jesus, you can stand there saying, this is the will of God. Again, I'll point back to Wednesday nights. They are so precious. Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, I am telling you, are some of the most precious and meaningful times we have together in the Word of God. And you don't know when your suffering day will come. And So you gather today to strengthen your brothers, And to be strengthened yourself so that when that day comes, this truth is rolling around in your head. So that you face whatever it is that comes with the absolute assurance. I wouldn't be here if God who is my father. He's not just God. He's not just Lord. He's not just King. God who is my father wills it. Therefore, I am here by God's providence. For God's purposes. Under God's provision. He's got a plan, and he's got a purpose, and he's got a point to all of this, so that we don't lose heart in our suffering, because we know God is sovereign over this suffering. And in addition to this, I know that no matter what my circumstances look like, God is working through my suffering to advance not just my life, but the life of the kingdom. Again, what does he say in Ephesians three thirteen? I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. Why? It is for your glory. Paul wasn't just suffering for Paul. Paul was suffering for the sake of the saints, for the sake of the Gentiles. My suffering is to your glory. Someday we get to heaven and I'm going to look back and Andrew's suffering in some way led to my glory. Do you understand? Your suffering to my glory and his suffering to your glory. We suffer together and God is using this to advance the kingdom. What did David read earlier? For, uh, Philippians 1.12 You know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. To advance the kingdom. To move this thing forward. My suffering is being used of God not just to shape me, but to advance what He's doing. And surely there had to have been times when the Apostle Paul said, what did I miss along the way? What, what did I miss along the way that led me here? I'm Paul. Paul. God is using me to plant churches and to share the gospel. And I'm in jail? You're you're, you're wasting time here. Paul was not a young man at this point. You're wasting time. The clock is ticking. And now I'm here in jail. There's so much church building that needs to be done. And instead of building the church, those saints are having to bring me food. They're having to care for my needs. And I was a man who was proud that when I came to them, I didn't mooch off of them. And now here I am in prison and I'm, and I'm wasting away. And surely some of you have thought the same thing. You've, you, you've looked up at times and you said, God, what are you doing here? Are you done with me? Have you forgotten about me? Have you thrown me away? Surely there's something better I could be doing for the sake of the kingdom. Well, beloved, I tell you, if that's where you feel. You're in good company. See Joseph in Egypt. See John on the Isle of Pat- Patmos. See John the Baptist beheaded because he refused to not preach the full truth of God's word. And see Paul languishing away in prison. You're in good company. And I must tell you that even if you're not a great writer like Paul, and even if Paul had never written a single letter to the churches, just his endurance itself spoke to the glory of Christ. Do you understand that just you showing up in this place? I know many of the ways in which you people suffer. People ask, what do you do during the Lord's Supper? I used to kneel or uh, sit over there. This last time I went and I sat over here with my head down. And and I'll pray for a while and I'll look up. And I'll pray for a while and I'll look up. What am I doing? Many times I'm looking up and I'm seeing your face. And I know what you're suffering through at this moment. And I'm not only praying that God will strengthen you at this table. I'm praying he will strengthen your brothers as they look to you and say, he's still coming. He's still going. He's pressing on. You show that he's worth more whenever you don't fade away when the suffering comes. You show that Christ wasn't worth a whole lot to you. If the minute you get punched in the mouth, you start fading back. But when you press on in in faith with him, when you press on in the middle of suffering, you're being used of God to proclaim to the world he's worth more. And the gospel goes forth. This is the way that his suffering is to their glory. And lastly, I got to move very quickly here. This was the main point to my whole sermon, but... It's not just to the glory of God. It's not just the glory of your brethren. It's to your own good. It's to your glory as well. Not glory in the sense of honor and praise and the world worshiping you, but as you stand and you bask in the glory of God in eternity and that that glory radiates in and through you as you bear his image more fully, Again, I say, carrying off into eternity. We know that He is doing something for us. in here. Your homework, I guess, for this week is to go home and read 2 Corinthians 4. Read 2 Corinthians 4. And if it doesn't make your heart burst within your chest, if it doesn't make tears roll down your face, if it doesn't make you rejoice that God would use a busted vessel like you, then I don't know what to tell you. The Apostle Paul says this, so we do not lose heart. Sound familiar? We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He's fixing to go on to say, don't look to the things that are seen. Look to the things that are unseen. Because the outside stuff, the stuff you see, it's wasting away. It's being destroyed. It's fading away. It's languishing. It's prison. It's feeling like you've been left on the sideline. So while all that wasting away is happening on the outside, the inner you is being renewed. Being renewed in what? In knowledge of God. Beholding the glory of God in Christ, the inner you is being renewed for verse 17 for this light and momentary affliction. Don't you wish you could speak like this? It's light compared to the weight of glory. It's momentary compared to the eternities of heaven, this light and momentary affliction. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Hear those words again. This suffering is not just a path to glory. This suffering, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Do you hear it? It's preparing. It's producing. It is causing. It is bringing. Your suffering is doing something. It is bringing this glory that God has prepared for you. Do you see it? So that you can call it light and you can call it momentary and you can call it just a vapor that is fading away because you know, because you trust in who God is and who He has promised to be and who He has proven to be throughout all redemptive history. I can walk through this knowing there's glory that waits on the other side that wouldn't come if I didn't walk through the suffering. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that every moment matters That every moment matters, not just the happy moments, not just the big moments, but those small, seemingly insignificant moments of suffering that they matter. They matter to you. They matter to your kingdom and that they matter in eternity, that you're using those moments to do something, to produce something, to bring something. And that that something is called glory. And we long for glory. So, Father, help us to be a people who suffer well. Who endure well. Who don't pull away. Who day after day and week after week, we come back and we gather and we study and we pray and we praise. Even in the midst, in, in, even in the midst of incredible suffering. Because we know that Christ is worth more. And we know that he always keeps his promises. So, Father, we pray that you would do this work in us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.